Well, I'd like to I'd like to ask you to join with me in prayer. And we ask we ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word right now, Lord. I pray that you would make me faithful to proclaim it truthfully. And Lord, I pray that you, that by your spirit, you would work in us ears to hear, soft hearts to receive your word as the voice of our good shepherd, and that we would trust your promises and heed your commands. I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to begin. Today marks the second week of Advent. So last week, being four Sundays before Christmas, marked the first week of Advent. Advent means coming or arriving. The church has traditionally celebrated four Sundays of Advent. Now, this is not something required by Scripture, but it is a, a wonderful tradition to mark the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ every year. So there's four weeks of Advent to mark the 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ, or the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years of silence between these. 400 years of the people of God waiting for deliverance, waiting for a deliverer, waiting for a redeemer. Now, the covenant people of God, Israel, before that 400 years of silence, they were brought back to their land after they were exiled in Babylon as a punishment by the Lord their God in response to their unfaithfulness to him. Israel had their glory years. God had blessed them richly and had given them honor amongst the nations. It was an outsized glory for her small size. And God had been patient with Israel, warning for years through prophets of a judgment which was to come if they did not repent and turn to the Lord and love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. But they rejected the word of their good shepherd the Lord, their God. So rather than leaving her in her sin, he disciplined Israel so that she would repent and turn once again to him. And as promised, the Lord, though, brought Israel back to the land of Israel. He promised this return, and he promised glory and prosperity and honor, the kind of honor that she had once had in her glory days, an actual glory that actually exceeded that glory. But though the Lord had kept his promise to bring her back to her land, for centuries, she suffered in her land under foreign tyrants, exercising cruel power over her, even though she was in her own land. The Lord continued to send prophets who prophesied about a restored kingdom about the crushing of Israel's enemies and the restoration of Israel's holiness and glory. And these prophecies from the mouth of the Lord's prophets increasingly spoke of deliverance through a chosen man, the Lord's anointed or Messiah, 
So Israel was trained to hope for the coming of, for the advent, the delivery, the, the, the deliverance of the Lord. Not just for the deliverance of the Lord, but the deliverer of the Lord. These prophecies became very personal, and by that I don't mean that they were just for individuals. I mean that they were clearly now talking about a person. And then the prophets stopped coming. Silence. The book of prophecies was complete. The picture of the coming Redeemer was finally painted. Not to change last minute. And for 400 years, the people of Israel waited for the advent, the arrival of their Redeemer. Now, by the end of that 400 years, the people of Israel found themselves waiting under the crushing arm of the wicked, ruthless, and godless Roman Empire. Now, some people of Israel had actually settled with this situation. They made their peace with Rome. And they were not eagerly awaiting the advent of the Messiah. Because they had found ways to profit off of Rome's power and tyranny. So the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers of Israel, they enjoyed greater power under Rome than they probably would have had without Rome. Because they had Rome's swords and spears to solidify their power. They made a deal with Rome. And they didn't want Rome to topple because that would actually crumble their power. Tax collectors too enjoyed riches because of their partnership with Rome off of the backs of their countrymen. They likely didn't long for the Roman occupation to end either because it had made them quite rich. They were not eagerly waiting for the advent of the Messiah. But others in Israel longed for redemption. Some longed for the redemption from Roman occupation. They saw it as an affront to their national identity and also as an insult to the Lord their God. It should be David's son who reigns over them with the Ten Commandments. And they waited for a military overthrowing of the wicked Roman government. They waited for the advent the arrival of the promised Redeemer to do this. And as we're going to see, they weren't entirely wrong to expect this. Now, others in Israel saw the corruption of their own people. Not just the Roman rulers among them, but they saw the sin of their own people, and they longed for the advent, for the arrival of the Redeemer to purify his people, as he had promised to do. They longed for the Redeemer to bring righteousness and a holiness to the hearts of his people, including them. And after 400 years of either waiting or not waiting for the advent of the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Christ, Brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests who are joining us, who've not yet joined the family of God by repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ. Just as certainly as Christ came the first time, he will come again. Like his people before his first coming, 
We too may be tempted to not live lives shaped by anticipation of this advent. But he tells us that we must. Lives shaped by the warnings and comforts and commands and promises that he has made about his arrival, his second advent. So I want us to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 26, and we're going to see here our first point. The branch restores the decimated house of David. The, de- the branch restores the decimated house of David. If you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So to a humble and poor Jewish lady, engaged to to be married to a humble and poor Jewish man, the angel Gabriel came. They were not of the group of Israelites who were enriched by the Roman occupation. They were of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, in Israel. Not only were they from that royal tribe, they were actually descendants of the great king David. They belonged to the house of David, which was the royal house of Israel. This house of David was the recipient of promises from God, which were almost too good to be true. The house of David was no longer glorious. It had been many, many Many years since David's house was glorious. Now, if you recall our sermons through the book of Ruth, and for Samuel, David, you'll note, was the royal kinsman redeemer, the head of Israel. And that means his glory was the glory of Israel. That he actually bore the responsibility to reign over Israel for God's glory and also for the glory of God's people. And so the fact that there was no son of David reigning over the people of Israel was actually a national shame. 
The house of David represented the people of Israel. And so the house of David's shame was the shame of Israel. By God's design, though, Israel had been whittled down from her former size and glory. And by God's design, the house of David, a royal house, was cut down. It was chopped down and stripped bare. A big, beautiful tree cut down to just the roots, just the stump. But now, the Lord, through Gabriel, tells Mary that this stump of a house will finally spring a bud, a shoot, a branch. Mary's son would be that shoot. The Redeemer to restore the house of David, and then also the whole house of Jacob, which is to say, the house of Israel, the whole people of God. He had come. God had not forgotten the promise that he made 700 years earlier. Promises that he made before Israel and its royal family were cut down by nations, sent by God to punish them. Promises such as the one from the mouth of Isaiah, given before Israel was cut down and put down, put into exile. We see this in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We find this promise that the Lord makes about a coming shoot, a branch from the root, from the stump of Jesse. Yes, he promises that the house of David will be cut down to nothing before it even happens. And then he promises its restoration. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion will be, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So we see that the branch, which is Jesus, born to Mary, restores the decimated house of David. But we also see, this is now our second point, that the branch reigns over and restores the household of God. He doesn't just restore the household of David, 
Well, because David's throne is the throne of Israel to restore the glory to Israel, to the people and household of God. The branch reigns over and restores the household of God. And so we see this is the root of Jesse. Now, why would we say the root of Jesse instead of the root of David? Well, Jesse was David's father. David was Jesse's least impressive son whom the Lord appointed to be the appointed, the anointed king of Israel. David was Israel's second king. But the king to whom God made permanent promises. David said the Lord would always have a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And it would be on that throne that he would not merely reign over Israel, but his reign would extend to all nations and cover the entire earth. Now David's reign was glorious. David did what God promised he would do. David united the nation of Israel. He expanded her boundaries and he subdued the enemies that surrounded her and oppressed her. He made Israel prosperous. Fathers could now feed their families and they could see children and grandchildren grow up. David reigned in righteousness. Though he was a sinner himself, Israel enjoyed the gift of a king who reigned with righteousness and who submitted to the law of God and being a sinner who repented when he broke the law of God. David was the first king of Israel to pass the throne on to his son, to Solomon, the first king of Israel whose reign extended past his own life. And Solomon's reign was even more glorious than his father David's. Israel enjoyed more peace, greater peace than under David's reign. Israel enjoyed honor and glory greater than under David's reign. Rulers from the corners of the world came to marvel at what Israel's God had done. And that was the high watermark of Israel's glory. The Lord had been generous and gracious with his people who were born with hearts just as sinful and wicked as their neighbors' hearts. They were nothing when God called them and promised to make them a great nation and to be their God and to bless the whole world through them. And the gift of the throne of David was the height of this. It made them glorious and given them peace and rest. But David's house, starting with the second half of his son Solomon's reign, became corrupt and more corrupt. And by the end of Solomon's reign, he was building temples for idols. And he had hundreds and hundreds of wives and hundreds and hundreds of concubines, which had turned his heart away from the Lord, the God of his father David. So Solomon's sin split Israel into two nations, two kingdoms, the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And Judah included Jerusalem, and it was Judah's throne that the descendants of David would reign on. 
And God promised, because they were unfaithful to him, to cut them down to nothing, to cut them down to a mere stump, the whole people of Israel, right down to the roots. And after years of patience and sending prophets to warn them, God sent them into captivity to exile them in Babylon. So this is not very glorious at all. They should have stopped being a nation at that point. They were scattered around the world. They had no reason to expect that they would come home, except that their God was Lord of history, and he had promised to bring her back. So too was the royal house of David cut down to nothing, right down to the roots, to the stump. But God's promise to Israel to restore her involved a kinsman redeemer, one who could restore what the family had lost. One who is authorized and empowered by God to act on behalf of the family. And it would count as if the whole family had done it themselves. And so God promised to restore Israel. And in order to do so, to restore the house of David, the son of Jesse, and to redeem Israel through the restoration of the house of David, so Israel was right to trust that if God were ever going to restore her, he would do it through David's house, which was now cut down to the roots. They were right to wait for Jesse's stump to bud and expect that God would restore the whole household of God through the reign of the branch that would come from the decimated house of David. Actually, the branch of David, this word, this concept, this picture, fills the prophecies of restoration which God comforted his people with. Isaiah's branch prophecy came before the cutting down of Israel and the cutting down of her royal family. The Lord promised to restore Israel in her royal house. Now the prophet Jeremiah comforted the people with the promise that the exile would last only 70 years. And God kept that promise and then he brought them back. And then to the, re the returned group of exiles, now humiliated and still cut down to a stump, the remnant, the Lord speaks again of a branch through the mouth of the prophet Zechariah. This is a little over 500 years before Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. Brother Caleb read this passage in completion. We're going to read just Zechariah 3, 8 to 10. See, you can hear this again, this branch from a decimated, humbled people. Not glorious at all, but God is going to bring a branch to bring glory. Zechariah 3.8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. For they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single bit. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So here we see a priest named Joshua, a crown, a rock with seven eyes, and a promise that the Lord will bring my servant, the branch. And God is saying he hadn't forgotten the promise to, to give a shoot from the stump of David, to 
to redeem the people of God who had been cut down because of their own sin, but yet kept by God for God. Again, after the exile, God reminds them of a coming branch. The branch from the root of David was now coming. He would be Mary's firstborn baby, born by miraculous conception because she remained a virgin until after his birth. The branch from the root, who has the seven spirits from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and who also has the seven eyes from Zechariah's prophecy. Seven meaning complete and perfect. He was to be born. We can see these two prophecies coming together in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Revelation 5, 1 to 6. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And in case we are wondering if it was correct to put all the hopes of restoration of all those things, of all those prophecies into the man Jesus Christ, the revelation of John makes it very clear. This is who I was talking about. This, Jesus Christ, is the root of David. Seven eyes perfect knowledge and vision. He sees all things and reigns over all things his eyes sees, which is everything. He is present everywhere, perfectly present through the Spirit of God. Seven, perfectly present through the Spirit of God. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing escapes his presence. Nothing escapes his reign. His reign, his kingdom is not limited by anything. David's branch, Mary's son, has come to reign over all things and to restore the crushed, humiliated, decimated people of God to the glory that not suits them, but a glory which suits God's love and affection and provision and exaltation of them. He has come to restore that glory and even increase it. That brings us to the third point today. And that's the branch reigns over a restored land. We're going to spend a few weeks together drinking of the promises which are attached to the branch, the root, the shoot, 
of the house of David, the stump of Jesse. But today, with the short time we have left together, I want to draw your attention to the land which is restored through the reign in the kingdom of the branch of David, which budded at the first Christmas. Now Christ reigns over all the earth. His reign over all the earth is complete. Nothing escapes his gaze and nothing escapes his presence. All things he governs for the glory of God and the good of his people. Nothing escapes this. He reigns perfectly. Every molecule, every speck of dust, every virus. But he will return to reign in his human body, on the earth, in all his glory. What hopes would have risen in Mary as she heard that her family, David's family, now reduced to a stump, just as God's people had been reduced to a stump? What hopes would have risen in her when she would finally see that branch budding? What promises which God had made for the branch of David would have welled up within Mary as she pondered these things which the angel spoke to her? She would have been right to hope confidently that her son would reign over his restored people in a restored land. Flip back to Isaiah's prophecy of the branch. We're just going to read from verses 5 to 10 to focus in on this. Isaiah 11, 5 to 10. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the fullness of the reign of David's branch, the restored Davidic throne through Mary's son Jesus will be a world where God's people dwell in perfect safety. The land which is under their feet will finally be one that's suitable for the glory of being the beloved people of God. The land which Mary walked on when she heard that promise was cursed. It had been cursed ever since the first humans, Adam and Eve, had sinned against the Lord their God. Adam's sin, being our head, was counted to all his descendants and upon the world which the Lord had given him to reign over. The world changed dramatically after Adam's sin. Instead of land perfectly ready to produce food and security and delights for humanity, it had now had to be wrestled out of the earth by hard work, by sweat, 
by hard work, maybe even of ingenuity and research and planning and innovate innovations and inventions. And then those innovations and inventions would then also be used by sinners to harm others and work against human flourishing. Human flourishing and blessing once came readily from the earth, but it now comes at the sweat of Adam's brow. And our bodies are also bearing the curse of Adam. We live under a death sentence, all facing death, either early or perhaps at the old age of 100. Now, other living creatures threaten our existence. Snakes and lions and tigers and bears cannot be left alone with humans, especially the weakest humans, newborn babies, and their great-grandparents. Sicknesses caused by tiny organisms, bacteria and even viruses are also now part of the cursed creation, feeling the weight of Adam's sin. Right now, the branch of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns over all these wild animals and diseases and wicked men and disasters. He reigns over them perfectly. None of them are outside of his control. He uses them to accomplish his perfect purposes, which is his glory and the delight and joy and holiness and knowledge of him of his people. But the fullness of his reign will be one where he doesn't reign over tragedy and sickness and death and uncooperative soil and bodies, but which abolishes those things. See, he now reigns over an unrestored earth, and we're grateful that he reigns over an unrestored earth, but he will one day reign over a restored earth. When the branch of David's reign is in its fullness, all that curse will be removed and creation restored to perfection. David's reign made God's people's lives much safer, much more secure, much more delightful. The land under David's reign would have been the longing for all Israelites who were outside of Israel, counting down the days until they could get back into the borders of Israel under the reign of good King David, God's anointed king, whose reign was for God's glory and also for the glory of his people. And that is lovely and wonderful, and it was worth thanking God for, but it stood as a mere foreshadow, a taste of the land under the reign of David's branch. The reign and kingdom of David's greater son, the branch of David's decimated house. That reign will, will extend to the ends of the earth. You will not be able to find the end of it. You'll never need to come back into its borders. That was the sure hope that Gabriel's words would have had on Mary's soul when she heard that her family's decimated glory had now begun to bud. She would have been right to expect this, to long for it, and to be certain that it would happen by the reign of her son to be named Jesus, 
the shoot of the stump of David, son of Jesse. Brothers and sisters, this is our sure hope as well. Jesus did not just come to encourage the world. He didn't just come to bring families together for family celebrations at Christmas time. He didn't even merely come to forgive sins. He certainly did come to pay for and forgive the sins of his people who would repent and believe in his name. But he did not only come for that. He came as the one who would restore the royal house of David and complete what David was unable to accomplish. He came to reign over all his enemies and subdue them. He came to restore his people and to restore them to glory, not that they deserved, but a glory that fits the people whom God has set his great affection on. A people chosen by God without any thought to their own worthiness. A people undeservedly chosen to delight in the glory of God. And Christ came to restore their glory and kingdom and reign over restored people and to reign over them in a restored land, a restored creation, perfectly suited for the pure delight in the Lord their God. This was Mary's hope. This is our short hope. The miraculous birth of Jesus and the incredible fulfillment of dozens and dozens of prophecies about his birth and the circumstances around it and the miraculous signs and wonders he performed and his perfect life and his death and then his resurrection from the dead is God's sure demonstration that Jesus is the branch, the one to restore all things. He has died for his people's sins. He has given them eternal life as his beloved people. And he certainly will provide for them a perfect kingdom in which to enjoy his perfect reign. But now he adds to his kingdom citizens by the preaching of the gospel. And those who believe in the gospel, that Christ died for the sins of his people and rose from the dead, and that he will return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. Those who believe in that gospel are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of his beloved son. And they're placed into his kingdom. They're citizens of the kingdom before his kingdom comes in fullness so that they can look forward to its advent rather than be terrified of being crushed by it. They will delight in his kingdom rather than being crushed by it. And so now, while we wait for it to come in its fullness, for him to return to judge the living and the dead, he is adding people to that kingdom, adding people who are longing for it, rather than people who should be dreading it. There is great and lovely discussions as to the exact order in which all of this will take place. Brothers and sisters who love the Lord and believe the gospel and believe every word written in the word of God about the Lord Jesus and his coming. People who tremble at his word have come to different conclusions as to the order of these events. 
Now, there are many positions that are in direct contradiction to the gospel and the promises of God, but there are some disagreements amongst faithful believers simply because this is a future event. Though we know much about it, just like the first coming of Jesus was described in great deal before it came, there were some details that had to be filled out by the actual event of his coming. So we should expect it to be also with his second advent, the second coming, the second arrival of the shoot of David. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, having made maybe some disagreements about how this will all work itself out, how the Lord will work it out, we can know for certain and be in full agreement about the final results His people will dwell with him under his perfect reign, restored to a greater glory than David was able to bring God's people, restored to a glory which befits a people who are the delight of God and who share in the inheritance which is really only deserved by God's own son. And until that day, we long for his second advent with patience and hope and confidence just like those who patiently waited for his first advent. People like Joseph and Mary and Anna and Simeon, who we meet in the, word, in the, the book of the Gospels. Trusting, though we wait in humility, he will certainly come to a humbled and pressed down people. David wrote in Psalm 23 that the Lord is his shepherd and for now, we enjoy the presence and the reign of the king and shepherd. We enjoy his presence in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of death and sin and Satan and curses of sin, such as sickness and COVID and unemployment and false teachers and persecutors and mockers of the Lord. We enjoy his presence in the presence of these things. But there will be a day coming when the shoot of David will come in such a glory that it will banish all sin and all the curses of sin from the land over which he reigns, which reign has no boundaries and no borders. And so brothers and sisters, because we have such a promise, we can live with patience and hope right now in this world of suffering and sin. in a world that is under the curse of sin. Because this is not the final reign of Christ. This is not as good as it gets. It is delightful to live in this world of sin and sorrow while being reconciled to the God who created it, to know him as our father because Christ died for our sins, to have peace with him, to know for certain at the end of our life, we will meet him face to face for our joy and not for our condemnation because Christ took our condemnation on the cross. It is a great joy to live in this world of sin and sorrow while delighting in a relationship with the Lord God as our father. But... We live in a world which does not have this hope. In a culture and world that is constantly surprised with death and uncertainty, 
That's why COVID has made this world mad. They're demanding only a world that contains certainty, which doesn't have death or sin to deal with. And they're surprised by it every time it comes. Rather than being grieved by it, they're also surprised by it. The world is not wrong to long for that. But they're wrong to expect that it's something that can be accomplished by human effort or human wisdom or human power or human government. Brothers and sisters, we're fools if we demand that of our governments. They have a responsibility to govern well and manage life in a fallen world with all its sickness and death and risk. But the citizens of the branch of David's stump citizens of Christ's kingdom ought to be the most reasonable people to govern. Because we don't demand of our government what only David's branch could do. We only expect that from the ruler who took the curse of Adam and who rose from the dead. So because we have a glorious life apart from the curse of sin in the future, We can live patiently and wisely in hope while in this world. I'm not expecting my health to last forever. I'm not expecting my money to be able to solve all my problems before it runs out. I'm not demanding that my youthfulness remains. I'm not not expecting my my house to last and to keep me forever. I'm not expecting this body to be safe from every virus or cancers or car accidents or dementia that arise by the sovereign will of God. And so when these things fail, I'm not crushed. Though I grieve, it doesn't destroy me. Because the world is not where my hope is. My hope is kept in heaven where the branch of David is seated at the right hand of glory, in which he will come with him in his second advent to judge the living and the dead and to reign perfectly until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And it is in a restored land, earth, that my eternal life will be enjoyed in the presence of Christ, the branch from Jesse's decimated stomach. A world exactly like this one, just as physical, just as earthy, with lakes and rivers and dirt and flowers and animals and gardens and forests and music and learning and discovering and building and celebrating and feasting, just now restored to a place befitting the glorious king who will reign over it in unveiled glory. And for the people whom he has set his affection on and redeemed from her sin with his own blood. Worthy is that king to receive all honor and power and glory. And we wait for his second advent in patience and hope. Though we grieve, we can be comforted. 
We do not demand things of that world in this world and so be irrational, unreasonable, and cruel fathers and husbands and wives and neighbors. Demanding things in perfection and the kind of joy and security that can only be provided by the branch of David's stone. Worthy is that king to receive all honor and power and glory. And they sang a new song saying, worthy is he because he was slain and by his blood he has ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and nation and people and every language and people and nation. And he has made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Brothers and sisters, he was faithful to come in humility to suffer for his people. And he will certainly be faithful to come in glory. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you did not leave your people decimated, that you did not just leave us in, your, in our sin, in our dishonor, in our humility, but Lord, that you brought the promised glorious shoot from your decimated people. And Lord, we look forward to the glory that Christ has purchased for your people, one that we don't deserve, but Lord, one that we long for. We long for a world where there will be no more bad news, where there will be no news of sickness or of car accidents or of loss of job or of war or of betrayal. But we long for a world perfectly restored. And Lord, we are grateful to be citizens of your kingdom right now, to enjoy your reign, which includes a reign over all things, including your enemies, including sickness, including death. You are reigning over all of those things perfectly, every molecule, every millisecond. But Lord, we are grateful that your promise extends beyond that to a reign where all of those things are banished from your presence. Lord, would you make us faithful to patiently wait for that day? Do not demand it right now and be so unreasonable as neighbors and spouses, children and parents, and co-workers and friends. Lord, I pray that you would uphold us as we wait. Help us to grieve as people who have hope. Help us to rejoice as people who have hope. And would that day come soon? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join with us in...